morning, everybody. Uh, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for The Filmmaker's Life. And um, for those of you who, who know me, my name is Joanne Butcher. I have a company called Filmmaker Success. And my job is to help filmmakers learn how to raise money and everything to do with the business of film. Uh, work on everything around business and money. And what I've found over the years um, is that I basically teach thing everything that filmmakers don't want to know about. They'd rather not have to know about the money and the business and the fundraising um, because they'd rather just be making movies. They'd rather be writing. They'd rather be directing. Uh, but the fact is, is that there's no getting around um, the business side of it and the fundraising side of it. Actually, we were just talking about that. Emily was just saying, you know, fundraising, fundraising is, is what she's working on. But um, but the other thing that I think is really important is that once armed with this information, filmmakers really do much, much, much better. So that's that's my goal is to help filmmakers do better. So I would like to introduce to you Emily Upchak today. And I don't do a bio at the beginning because we're gonna, we're gonna learn about you as we go along. Um, there was a bio out in social media. Uh, but the first question that I always love to ask is, when did you first know that you were a filmmaker? Well, this is, hello everyone. Hi. Hi. So I am um, Emily Upsack, and I'm now based just outside of the in the mountains above Boulder, Colorado, uh, where I'm originally from. And I lived in Trinidad and Tobago for 10 years where I made films and also was the creative director for the Trinidad and Tobago Film Festival. So actually, when I first visited Trinidad, um, my husband was born there and we went on a trip in, I think it was early, the early, maybe 2000, 2001. And um, I was, at that time, I had just finished a degree in comparative religious studies. And I was particularly interested in Afro-Caribbean religious practices. And I wanted to go to um, an Orisha feast, which is the sort of cousin of Vudon. Um, and in Trinidad, it's called Shango. So I connected with a community in Claxton Bay and went to sort of three nights of the feast, the ceremony. Um, and at the end of that, the, the, our our guide, the person who had invited us to, who was, a, who was the lead drummer in the community there, he said, you should come back and film the ceremony. And I was not involved with film at all. So I like to say that the Arishas oh. invited me into my filmmaking practice. And, you know, it really started in Trinidad and Tobago and moving there. That's amazing. So. That's amazing. And, and I, I, that's an incredible story. But, um, and it strikes me as being very brave that you would connect with this group of people. But um, how did you in the first place connect to Afro-Caribbean religions? 
where are you from? Where did that, how did that happen? You know, the I know. already had got you a long time before. It's, I know. <laughs> um, well, I, as a younger person, sort of thought of myself as a dancer. I took a lot of dance classes, did a little performance. I mean, nothing professional or anything like that. And I still love dance. And um, I, in my religious studies um, coursework, I was particularly interested in the idea of performativity and this intersection of ritual practice uh -huh. um, and the body. And, you know, the Caribbean just felt like a really natural space in which that intersection was happening. Um, and then also Trinidad, just having that, that sort of natural connection in which my husband was born there. Um, and then strangely enough, one of my professors at the university, she is from Guyana, but her whole family is uh, based in Trinidad and Tobago. So the Kempadus. So Kamala Kempadu was my um, professor at the university. Subsequently, later, her sister was my doula in Trinidad. And uh, yeah, for when I had my son, who was also born in Trinidad. So uh -huh. um, there's just some sort of, yeah, karmic. I, I feel as though it was very recently on the filmmaker's life that I was talking about this, but I, um, I, um, part of my story is I was too sick to work for seven years. And when I started to come out of that, I, uh, studied sound healing first, and then I studied shamanism and, um, I guess to become a shaman. I never talk about it very much, but, um, anyway, all, all of this is just hugely interesting to me. And one of the, I, I know it was only a couple of weeks ago I shared this, that um, in my uh, studies, I discovered that back in the 18th century, the um, academics who were studying shamanism around the world, because shamans exist in every culture, decided that African religions didn't do shamanism in the same way as the other, um, other continents. And that African shamanism um, in, in, the other sh in the other countries, there was a shaman and then the community followed the shaman. In the African religions, the community worked together to create the um, bringing together of the other life and this life. And Ooh. so they decided that doesn't count. And Ooh. they they excised out African religions from the academic study of, of shamanism back in the 18th century. And I was very struck by this because I thought that that's what makes it so interesting to me. Mm, yeah. There's yeah. this community aspect and it sounds like that's what you experienced at the Orisha feast. Yes, and I, um, it's actually on my Vimeo page, it's called Dancing Deities, it was my first film it's a documentary I mean it's it I really didn't know what I was doing I did bring someone in to film it who sort of knew what they were doing but um it, I think it has uh, some redeeming qualities in that it's a really just a document of a practice in the southern part of Trinidad and um, I'm proud of it still no that's fantastic that's fantastic I I was invited one time to one uh Santeria event in Miami many, many years ago. And I just felt so privileged to be invited and to see 
that particular lineage, which was a matriarchal lineage. But again, the same concept of, you know, first of all, the drummers arrived, they started drumming, they started, you know, bringing in the, the Orishas and then everybody arrived and, and began the dancing. So although there were leaders, actually the leaders were sitting on chairs while everybody else danced. It was, it was really, really fascinating. Ah, oh, that's so great. So we can all watch that film. Um, so, uh, so now you, you, did you, did you get the bugs straight away? Were you like, uh oh, I'm in. <laughs> did you realize from then on you were going to be making films? Um, maybe, I mean, I had also, so, um, after I graduated from the University of Colorado, I, um, and I started making this film, I subsequently got a job at the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art and really learned there how to be a cultural administrator. So a lot of the skills that I've now taken into my filmmaking practice, I learned in nonprofit land, um, you know, grant writing. Uh, I was in charge of membership, which is like crowdsourcing, you know, um, writing press releases and interfacing with niche niche communities niche marketing um and and then after that after i left that job i worked for one season with the denver film festival um doing niche marketing and then we moved to trinidad so i finished what niche marketing did you have to do with the denver film festival that's like there was a film on the death penalty and so I would reach out to you know lawyers at, who are working in advocacy for against the death penalty or something so trying to get communities who might be interested in a certain topic to right. come to um the film and I I mean now I I do that um for all of my films try to find who you know think about who is the audience for this film and what kind of groups already exist who already have, you know, a membership or, um, you know, a community who might be interested in the work that I'm making. So um, that was super helpful. And I made some great contacts there. I think film festivals are helpful in that way. And then I, when I moved to Trinidad, I was finishing Dancing Deities um, and there was a, the film commission was newly formed and there was a small grant which I applied for and received to finish the film. And I went to a meeting there um, with the two people who ha had facilitated the grant and they were just starting the Trinidad and Tobago Film Festival. So I told that them- Paddington? Was that was one yeah, of them? Bruce, Bruce Paddington and Marina Salandi Brown. So uh -huh. um, I said to them, you know, if you need anything, I have some experience um, and I could be helpful. And then the next week, they called, <laughs> so, you know, what, what can you do? Can you come so, over? <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. And then, and then it kind of, you know, went from there. That's, that's really awesome. So then you stayed in Trinidad for 10 years, right? Yes. And uh, so now you, you finished Dancing Deities, you're working with the film festival, what what happened next for your filmmaker journey? I just want to say, Emily, one of the things I just love about this interview series I do is how every filmmaker's journey is so completely different. 
Mm. Yeah. Uh, even I, I identified so much when you talked about going and working at the Boulder Museum and learning those skills, grant writing, writing press releases, niche marketing, all of that stuff. I, I learned all of that stuff years ago as well, working in the nonprofit world, running a cinema, all of that stuff. But it's just, it's really interesting hearing somebody, you know, build up their skills as they go along. And, and everybody is so different. Everybody's so different. It's yeah, and I mean, I really didn't, you know, start making films until my, until my thirties, which now sounds quite young. But I, I thought, oh, I came to it late, you know. If I would have known earlier what I wanted to do, I'd be further along. But I do think, you know, like any creative medium, being a filmmaker requires having a voice, which means having some experience and and having something to say. So, I mean, I teach now and. And I do think that that young people, you know, 20 year olds have had experiences already. Many of them have had really intense experiences already. That being said, they, they haven't necessarily been able to like synthesize that into their personality. And so, you know, I think it's okay. I think it's good actually to take some time with your practice and be a little bit older and, you know, and be able to say something and also be able to handle a set and handle collaboration and working with a large group of people and managing and yeah yeah I heard years ago and I don't remember where this came from but a Native American saying that um you can't be an artist until you're 30 because you don't have anything to say <laughs> okay <laughs> I like that I like that um so what was your next film after dancing? so then my next film is called whining uh, like y dash n-i-n-g question mark I don't know why I, I, <laughs> like that but the um the idea with that is a sh it's another short documentary and it's um a look at uh at whining the dance form so the contemporary uh dance of Trinidad and Tobago and kind of and, can you explain what whining is so because the non-trinities oh. are not going to know right. what that so means. well I mean it's a it's a Caribbean you know it's an African diasporic dance form and it's Quite popular in the Caribbean and it has different names much like the Orisha practice has different names depending on the island so um, I mean people would probably more, be more familiar with it from Jamaica um, so like or like you know I'm thinking the word daggering although maybe that's not a familiar term like bump and grind maybe oh. no the so sort of where where um, the normally the woman backs into the man and dances you know it's sort of a, a dance like this you know a dance so um and kind of looking at it as a, a cultural practice and identity and how like mothers and sons will wine with each other so it's not necessarily like a sexual dance or but it can be as well um that there's you know a soft wine which is just like a sweet dance or there could be like a more aggressive wine um something you see very much in carnival but but it's really like a a dance form that's that's pretty regular and practiced um and i you know i think it really has a cultural context so i made a short documentary about that um and interviewed academics and looked at kind of the 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 indo um the East Indian influence on the dance, as well as the African diasporic. Um, and yeah, 
So that was my second film. And yeah, so you were really, again, using your dance background. And then there's also something going on there that I think is really interesting, which is sort of taking something that seems very uh, lowbrow popular culture and then raising it, elevating it through academia and uh, turning it in, into something that's worthy of examination and investigation mm -hmm. right instead of like oh big, big, I I know I know that for myself um because you know I was I have a master's in English and people don't understand why I like what are popular and lowbrow and genre art forms you know but but I think that 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 um it's it's all it's all culture you know it's just that academia has sort of elevated certain cultures more than others yeah and it can be racist that that sort of academic lens or or non-inclusive you know at times so i think that there's there's been a move to integrate other voices and other perspectives um into into um both academia and ethnography and anthropology and documentary filmmaking. I mean, that that ended up after I made that film, I sort of stepped away from documentary and and uh, because, and ironically, you know, now I make narrative films and I, I, I stepped away from documentary because I felt like I was living in this culture that was other than myself. And this whole idea of not being from there and kind of putting this, this white American female lens on um, black and brown people and their cultural experience and what, you know, and just kind of being like, you know, maybe that's, maybe I need to uh, pivot and, and tell stories that feel like they're coming from within me and that I have more authorship over versus mm -hmm. like trying to reflect back somebody else's culture to themselves, you know? Right, um, right. But I say ironically, because I think, and it, that this is just, you know, everybody has their own process as you've been saying, but um, it doesn't matter what form of storytelling it takes, representation matters. So like, even though I'm in now in narrative filmmaking, like I'm, I'm, utterly concerned with representation all of the time and and whose story am I telling and where is my like place of authorship in this story and um what are assumptions that I'm making and you know so it's it's it doesn't matter if it's documentary or if it's narrative or it's experimental you know storytelling is storytelling and you need to be aware of of the stories that you're telling and from what perspective so and and I think you know, when you bring up uh, the this issue of white filmmakers telling uh, the stories of black and brown people and then reflecting their, their stories back to themselves, this has become a major conversation in the documentary world, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a, a, a huge conversation and, um, but of course, but it's also still happening. And um, I'm not sure exactly if that's going to change or not or how that or how that's going to work itself out but it's still certainly um true that white filmmakers are are telling the stories of 
other cultures and and getting to be hired or paid or whatever to to tell those stories and it's it's um a problematic uh problematic piece um i wanted to ask you um because part of your story is that you got to go to the rotterdam producers lab and i just think that's really exciting where where did that come along in your career well, I am a DIY kind of gal. So pretty much every opportunity I've ever had, I've created. Nobody, I never seem to get anything. Nobody says yes. Like I, my new, my new um, saying for myself is that I like to green light myself, basically, yeah. you know, because nobody else seems to want to green light me. And, and I think it, I mean, it happens to a lot of people. I'm not saying poor me or anything like that, but it's just, it's doggy dog out there and you have to decide if, if you, you know, where your priorities lie and what you want. Um, so I was working with the Trinidad and Tobago Film Festival and we had applied to um, the ACP, which is the African Caribbean Pacific Group of States and it's a fund by the European Union um, to fund initiatives in Africa, the Caribbean and Pacific. So uh, we applied for funds to develop a Caribbean film database, which is still online. It's the most comprehensive database of Caribbean films um, in the world, really. And uh, to create a Caribbean film market. So um, I was set with, I mean, I, I, put that proposal together with the team, with everybody else. And then uh, I was set, I was put in charge of that initiative. So basically I spent um, a number of years going to different festivals and meeting people and inviting people and vetting people for the film mart um, and also to develop partnerships for the database. And in that um, we developed a relationship with the Rotterdam Producers Lab. Um, and we had a conversation going with, um, I'm forgetting the name of the, of the uh, Hubert Balls, the film oh, fund, um, and trying to get more Caribbean uh, films funded through, through that entity. Because one of the problems with Trinidad and Tobago is that it um, became a first world nation based on the GDP and the number of people in the country. They just, you know, take the amount of money that the country makes and divide it by the number of people. And then it's like first world. So all of a sudden filmmakers in Trinidad weren't eligible for a number of these European funds because they were for like developing nations or something. So we were trying to justify that, you know, it's a, it's all, it also should be a qualitative measure of access and resources, not just you know, because there's natural gas and oil in Trinidad. So we were having that conversation. GDP, again, people who are not Trinidadians wouldn't know this, but because the Trinidadian economy is based on oil, that their GDP must be higher than, you know, Haiti or something that doesn't have oil. Oh, yeah. But the oil, because it's, I guess, I don't know, 90% owned by Americans, um, but, but that's going to skew the GDP. A, a huge amount is that probably yeah that's exactly it and the brits the brits own a lot there too british oh, the, brits well. and the americans yeah. <laughs> so um so it turns out the the producers lab the way they do that is that they 
they develop relationships with different entities. Um, and then those entities become nominating uh, oh. bodies. That's um, how I know you, about Rotterdam because um, I used to run IFP Miami, which doesn't exist anymore. But so yeah. IFP, which is now the Gotham's, has a partnership with Rotterdam. They nominate producers and then producers go. Yeah. So that's how, how I've heard about it in the past. Yeah. So, so we started um, to be, we became a partner and, um, and they, then they, they basically invited me to come for the first year to experience the lab and participate. So, so I basically, like I said, sort of created the opportunity for myself um, and, what was and it like? was excellent. And I have a lot of uh, colleagues and friends from that experience who are, you know, making amazing work and who um, I, I'm still in touch with. So tell tell everybody a little bit about it, because for some reason in the last month, I've been on my clients like I want you to apply to apply for labs. I want you to apply for labs. Uh, tell Tell everybody a little bit about what that experience is. So, I mean, there's a number of labs that happen everywhere and they all have a different kind of quality to them. And it depends if it's a screenwriting lab or a producer's lab or a directing lab. So Rotterdam has a producing lab where basically it's quite large. I mean, I think there were 90 of us. They invite 90 producers from all over the world. Um, and it's competitive. Um, so you have to go through a, an organization or an agency and entity and apply and then or they nominate people based on your work. Um, and it's five days of one-on-one -on -one sort of speed dating meetings, panels, professional development conversations, parties, luncheons, breakfasts, screenings, just really intensive. Um, but it, it's training you to be a producer really, and to understand the, the climate of independent filmmaking. I mean, Rotterdam focused more on sort of the European landscape. So co-productions and um, co-productions and um, other, other sort of film financing uh, initiatives. But there's, there's a lab in Toronto, a lot of festivals, basically have gone this route of creating labs that are sort of tied into the festival. And I think this is also, I mean, there that festivals are interested in education, but also they, um, it's a way to get funding because people are interested in seeing filmmakers get more professional development and whatnot. So uh, Berlin has a great lab. That one's more of a director's lab. Obviously in the US, Sundance has screenwriters labs and directing labs and producing labs and so does Gotham as you mentioned and um others so yeah yeah that's great thank you thank you so um once you did the producers lab is that was it after that that you decided to make a feature or how did how did it come about how did the Orishas lead you to making a feature film <laughs> right um so I think it was actually around that time I just I I had started to make some short experimental films um really just playing with the camera and with sort of female subjects um in Trinidad and then over lunch with my husband we were sort of batting around ideas he's a visual artist but he was working in the construction industry in Trinidad um and 
we, I said, well, maybe we should just write a script and make it fun and funny and kind of spoofy or something, not take it too seriously, just have some fun. So um, that was my next film project. It's called Knockabout. Um, it's pretty, I don't know. It's, I, I, I recently put spoofy in the, in the log line and it made me feel better about it. Um, <laughs> it's definitely, you know, narrative is, is hard. I think making a narrative film of any, it's, this is a short narrative film. Um, narrative's harder than people realize. And, you know, it's so, so genuinely collaborative that it's like, uh, and the writing really matters and how the actors sort of execute that writing um, also really matters. So uh, yeah, I definitely, I, I, again, like, you know, you look back at your work and sometimes you want to go back and like, re-edit or change something or fix it but I think that also letting your work just stand gives you and others an opportunity to see your trajectory as a filmmaker yes. and that yes. you grow and um you know I've definitely absolutely grown as a filmmaker and also I think one of the big things with that film and then my subsequent uh feature moving parts is learning how to get feedback from people and take on what resonates and leave behind what doesn't. And, and, you know, I think as a younger emerging filmmaker, I sort of took on everybody's recommendations for everything. And uh, it, it makes, it made the work a little bit like, it didn't have like a through line or a voice in a uh -huh. way that I think my work does now because I'm more clear about how to just synthesize information and, and, and and sit with with ideas, other people's ideas, and also see if there's like repeating feedback. If you get the same yes. kind of input yes. from five different people, then it's maybe something to consider, you know. So, um, yeah. So knockabout, I made knockabout. Um, it showed around at a few different uh, festivals. Hold on one second. Sorry. Nouveau regard. Sorry about that. Um, that was you, right? In front of a, we, we just show, saw you for a minute in front of a Nouveau yeah. regard. Yeah. F yeah. So that was knockabout when we played in um, Nouveau regard. Is that Guadeloupe or Martinique? I can just see it says SFF, which is, I wasn't sure what that was. Um. Yeah, that was the Guadeloupe Film Festival. Yeah. That's interesting what you were saying, though, about listening to other people's input. And as a younger or less mature filmmaker who hasn't really found their voice yet, that that can really throw you off. And I, I, I think it's, it really is something that happens with maturity where you can take in input but it doesn't necessarily take you off your course you know because even if five people do say this the same thing it it doesn't necessarily mean um I, I i don't know quite what i'm trying to articulate but just that um even if five people say the same thing it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to change your whole film because of that you know mm -hmm. yeah uh, I, I do, a, I have a process with my clients where we give feedback on their scripts and I'm listening for the five, you know, people saying the same thing. But 
I often find that that same thing can be addressed with maybe one line. It's not, it's not like, oh, we've got to change this whole script. You know, there could be a line that clarifies something that was missing or something like that. Or, I mean, so then um, my next film, which was Moving Parts, which is my first narrative feature, and we can talk a little bit about that. One of the, in the rough cut screenings, I, I got three times I got the feedback that um, the story is about a Chinese woman who migrates to Trinidad to be with her brother. Um, he gets her a job at a Chinese restaurant, which she soon discovers is a front for a brothel. And so, and then she gets sort of streamlined into this sex trafficking world. And um, there's two scenes that are quite uncomfortable in which it's, you know, it's, we don't show her naked body or anything like that, but it's, um, I was trying to depict like sex for sale isn't, it's not, it, I, I was trying to not exotify sex for sale. Like right. actually mm -hmm. it might be something that's really uncomfortable and like women don't want to be doing, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to just be this like strip club, ha you know, hot erotic thing, like actually this is like a potential uh, feeling that a woman who's selling sex could be having. And I, all three times it was men who gave this feedback, like, oh, those scenes are so uncomfortable. Are they necessary to the film? Mm -hmm. And that, that made me think, yes, they are. Like, if they're making you uncomfortable, I'm, you know, that's great. Like, I'm doing the work that I'm trying to do. So, um, so sometimes that when you get feedback, yeah, you can you can make decisions even if it if you get multiple um, sort of comments that are similar. So yeah, that's so interesting because uh, I I just was watching something yesterday and uh, sex scenes are usually shown as you know Vaseline on the <laughs> camera lens or whatever you know and the and slowed down and it's all very beautiful you know but so so to show sex in a in a way where it's unpleasant and unwanted and uh yes of course people are going to be uncomfortable with that and they're not used to seeing it mm -hmm. yeah yeah but that's a really really important topic to to consider in a film and especially for a woman to tell that that story about um being on on that side of the equation um, just, I think we're seeing more uh, stories coming out that look at human trafficking, and I, I hope that there'll be even more. W was that um, a major part of that film, or was it a minor part of the film? Would you say? Um, yeah, there's the the well, the, like I said, there's just two sex scenes um, in in that film, but. That that film was so. Then I also collaborated with my husband on that screenplay, and um, and I we applied for um, the Trinidad and Tobago Film Commission had an initiative in which they were uh, funding three feature films for a hundred thousand dollars each, and we applied for that, and we we got it, which is why that film got made because if if we hadn't have gotten it that script probably would have just been shelved and like moved on to the next thing um but what what we wrote together was a very different film and I was really interested in kind of um broadening out into 
my voice as a female filmmaker with female protagonist in this female experience. So, um, and what we had submitted was a little bit more of like a thriller sort of, um, and maybe was even a bit too like poverty porn or something that I did, I wasn't feeling like it was totally the story that I wanted to tell. So I went through kind of a laborious rewriting and rewriting and really struggled with the writing of that film. Even when we were shooting, I was writing scenes and collaborated with another uh, writer as well, who sort of took it in another direction. So, and, and I had a creative um, committee from the film company who was giving me notes. And subsequently I was getting my master of fine arts at Vermont College. Um, it was a low residency program. So I was coming and going from there and also getting feedback from, uh, from my mentor advisors, faculty there. So that project, I mean, it was really painful um, in terms of the process and how much input I got and trying to find my way. And I think um, ultimately yeah. it's a better film than it could have been. I think that it early on and day one, we, we, or it was the second day we filmed and everybody was trying their best. Everybody was just working really hard. And so the, the hair and makeup and the costume department, the um, two characters had come in and they kind of said, well, one was the smuggler. And he said, well, I see myself like wearing all black with like black leather patent shoes. And, um, and then the madam, she was like, they put her in all black too. And, and, uh, and then we were in this garden and there were these, these roosters everywhere that were like making all these noises. And then we decided to put the roosters in the frame because then, you know, at least the noise <laughs> makes sense because you can see yes. and And then we shot this, this whole day. Oh, and then my cinematographer was like, there was a scene in a, at a dining room table. And my cinematographer said like, oh, I think we should have a smoke, like a dry ice machine because, and then, and then it was, it, it was just like, and I was trying to make this kind of neo-realist human trafficking, human uh -huh. sex trafficking movie. And, and then I had an editor, he was from Puerto Rico on set and he, um, he, he came to me at the end of the day and he said, he's been looking at the dailies and he said, you know, I don't, this isn't really, I'm not sure this is what you want. Like, this isn't what we've been talking about. Um, and then he said something like, I think it's too quirky. And, you know, English isn't his first language. So I thought, oh, well, quirky, that sounds pretty good. Like maybe he meant something else or, so um, then I went and looked at the footage and sure it's really hard to tell sometimes what's going on and so and my husband was um, in the states so I had Gabriel the editor put some links up on Vimeo and and I called my husband and had him watch it and and he um, called me back and he said you know oh are you are you alone right now and I was like uh, yeah and he's like I know you're working really hard and you know he's being very very sweet and I was like uh-oh uh-oh and then he said you have like a B grade telenovela on your hands right now is what My he said to me God. on the phone. And then I just had to shift everything. We got rid of that whole day and we were only shooting, we only had 16 days to shoot this movie. So it was like, 
now we have 15 days to shoot the movie and um I just had to be all over everything the whole time <laughs> you know talk to everyone you know make sure that everything was you know because it's like the art that hair and makeup matters if they put a bunch of makeup on when yes. she's supposed to be coming off a boat from China like you know or if she just had a fight or was supposed to be bruised up and there's no bruises, you know, it's like everything matters to the storytelling. So um, that, that movie was extremely hard. Um, but I think first features are. How, how did you turn it around though? How did you go I, from. I mean, I, I basically stayed up all night looking at the script because I had, I brought on another scriptwriter who had this kind of like fanciful poetic voice and the way Trini's interpreted that it just was turning like slapstick or something. And it wasn't, it right. wasn't right. So I basically rewrote, like went through the whole screenplay, like stayed up the whole night was working on the screenplay. Then I met with the heads of the department. So um, mm -hmm. Shannon Alonzo was my production designer who was, and she was amazing. And I basically was like, you, I need you to oversee like hair and makeup and costume and check everything. And you, and I talked with her about what the vision is. And then she just, she was really a big part of that. And then I had to talk with the cinematographer because she um, was working in a lot of television and also wasn't from uh -huh. Trinidad and like, you know, and we just really hashed out like what the vision was, which I thought we had already, but we hadn't really. So, you know, sometimes it happens on set and then she fully got it. And I think she authored a really beautiful film for me. Wow. And, um, yeah. What, what day of production was that, that you had this two. big- That was day two. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I have a client whose film got shut down on day four of production by COVID. And I just felt terrible for him. I even avoided calling him for a couple of days because I just thought he was going to be so depressed. And when I called him, he said, oh, no, it's really good <laughs> because we're going to regroup. And he learned so much in those four days. Yeah. Plus, they had to fire one of their actors for um, um, uh, harassing the the women on the set. So anyway, but, but it's just... Um, to make that big pivot when you don't have something like COVID, that's really impressive. That's really amazing that you were able to do that. And that you were able to hear your husband. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I think filmmaking is uh, so much about creative problem solving and, and leaning into the discomfort and leaning into the long hours and the hard work and the you know, it's, you just get into this kind of like zone where, and it's so fun if you let it be, but it's hard, very hard work. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So having, uh, so what did you, what happened with that first feature? What, how, I, I, it, it had the, a grant, with the, with the $100,000 grant, did you have that fast turnaround? Were you in that set that had, had to turn it in in a year? Or was that a different, were you in a different one? Um, maybe I, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember that being a, a specific caveat. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was um, Play the Devil, Cutlass, and Moving yes. Parts yes. were the films that were funded. I was, 
I was a judge on a later one and they had a very fast turnaround. They had to, they got the grant, they had to finish by the festival that year. But mm -hmm. the one you were in, they, they didn't have that fast yeah. going on. Yeah. So, so moving parts at a, at a respectable um, festival run, we premiered at the Denver Film Festival um, and then played, I don't know, maybe 20 festivals after that, including a number of Caribbean and Caribbean diasporic film festivals. Um, Panama International Film Festival was uh, really a great one and um, Diana Sanchez who I'm not sure where she's now, but she was the senior programmer for TIFF for a really long time for Toronto. Um, so there were some great films and people at that festival. And, uh, and then we were able, we, we secured a sales agent who helped us to get distribution. And so it's um, on Amazon through IndiePix, who's our distributor. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in that way we had sort of the full Yes. of an experience with a feature, pr the premiere, you know, playing at other festivals, going and doing Q and A's um, and then getting sales and distribution, which is hard to do and um, getting even harder right now, so. And uh, have you made fe features since that one? So then my next project is the one I'm working on now basically. So I have just completed a short proof of concept. It's called Silt and it's um, done really well on the festival circuit. Uh, we premiered at Boston Independent Film Festival and won the special jury award. And then we were the opening film for Chicago Underground Film Festival. And then we've gone on to play at um, Dallas, Hawaii, Santa Fe, Denver, Wisconsin, Durango, San Francisco Center, which is another festival, um, and others. So that uh, is this, it's a, like I said, a short proof of concept um, and it focuses on the main character in the feature. The feature screenplay's been written. Uh, I've written this feature screenplay and that is a near future climate drama set on the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. And it's um, the water crisis in the Southwest has already happened. So the two major dams have been shuttered, Glen Canyon and Hoover Dam, and the reservoirs are dry. And 40 million people are without water and 6 million more without power. So everybody's fleeing LA and Phoenix and Las Vegas, headed back East. And the protagonist is, um, botanist from the Navajo Nation and she's working for the Department of the Interior and she's been sent to monitor these two developers from Phoenix who are proposing new smaller dams along the river um, as kind of a band-aid to the situation. So uh, that's roughly a two million dollar project which I'm fundraising for right now and looking to get some some A-list talent attached to it. And the, uh, the short is, starts with her uh, leaving her aunt's funeral and remembering a trip they took together when she was a young person and where her love of plants comes from, so. And where there was still water. Where right? there was still water and yeah, and their road trip 
she her aunt is taking her back to California because her parents are divorced and she lives in California now and um, they traverse the Colorado River along the way. So I have to say, um, reading the log line for Silt, I was absolutely terrified. It's, you know, and I just, I just, before I came on this call, you know, I just heard on the news today that the hottest days ever on earth are coming in the next five years and what the impacts of that might be. And then, you know, and the, the log line of your film Silt is, um, you know, after, you know, after yeah. the has happened. And, um, you know, I think that post-apocalyptic movies and, series are super popular mm. and, uh, but there was just something about your film that that felt very close to reality to me in a way that was was very frightening to me and more so than most of the the ones that I hear about with the mm. post-apocalyptic but but yours was really it just felt very grounded in in reality in a way that was terrifying Mm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I did just in the past six months change it from an impending crisis to that the crisis had already happened. And that helped me to free up creatively somehow to that, you know, instead of trying to fight against this, the possibility of something that it's like, oh, the possibility is is present. But I, I am exploring how to bring some levity and some possibility uh -huh. of hope into uh -huh. the story. So uh -huh. not just some sort of like apocalyptic, dystopian climate crisis movie, you know, but that perhaps there's a way for us to learn from, from nature. There's a mountain lion character in it. And it also, yeah, there's some surrealist elements that unfold, so. And your main character is really, very very attractive I don't mean just she just looks attractive but she's a very attractive character um so uh I like to open it up to any questions if you just like to raise your hand uh and if you have any questions for Emily that would be great um if if nobody is going to ask anything I'm just going to ask about um how do you balance working as a professor and with your filmmaking? Um, I, I, so I've, I've gone the route of trying to have day jobs that, um, you know, are somewhat aligned to my filmmaking career. Wow. Uh, so working at the film festival and now teaching film, there there is some sort of alignment and, you know, being associated with the university, there's little pockets of funds which help me with development or, um, you know, going to festivals or meeting with people, um, access to equipment, access to people, other people who are creatives and or technicians. Um, and then in teaching, I find, you know, on the best days that there's this reciprocal relationship and that I'm learning from from the students and that they're bringing in new information and and I'm sharing I really try to say I identify as a filmmaker not as an academic you know but I think a lot of academics say that so I'm not sure and maybe <laughs> I'm becoming more of an academic but um and that I'm really there just to share what my experience has been and what I know um 
So I have a course that I've created and it's basically, it's called Producing the Independent Feature and it's everything I didn't know when I was producing moving parts. So, you know, just trying to really go from experience and also be comfortable saying like, I don't have the answers, you know, to everything. And technology is changing all the time. I mean, I really think like my strength is more about that, that filmmaking is about collaboration, about problem solving, about having a creative vision, about finding your voice, about light and sound and color and tone and pace and movement. And, and then all the other things around it are constantly changing. And that is something that people can kind of educate themselves on their own, but really just creating an environment for reflection and critique. And um, so, it is hard though, because, you know, while I'm teaching, you like writing or editing um, or following up for, you know, applying for labs and fellowships and grants and having coffee meetings with people and fundraising, it's, it all takes a lot of time and it, it can be distracting teaching and having people, a lot of people with needs. And at the university, I mean, my classes are like 16 people. And so I think for a lot of my students, I might be the only professor that they actually know because they're in these larger format classes. And, uh -huh. and I'm also, I also have them call me Emily. And so it's a little bit more, uh, and then they're making creative work and, and we're talking about that and their ideas. So it, it is personal. It's more personal than, you know, right. a lecture class or something like that. So it is hard, um, but there's always the summers and the, the <laughs> winter break. Um, so I do my best. Joe has a question. What's your question? Hey, hey uh, thanks for doing this, Joanne. And hey, Emily, nice to meet you. Uh, you were actually just getting to it a little bit, but my question was, um, I guess just like when you're working, I'm assuming you work like full-time as a professor, but uh, just kind of like what a day in the life is when you're going through development. Cause sometimes I struggle with finding some structure as a freelance artist and how that relates to like collaboration. Are you constantly engaging with like department heads on a daily basis? How do you keep the energy up? Um, and just sort of like what your day looks like and is there a structure to it? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I, I'm kind of glued to my Google calendar. I actually, I mean, on Sunday, I look at my week, I put everything on there. And then if I don't get to something, I move it to a different day. There's some things that I feel like I've been moving for like months, you know, but I, it's a way for me to keep track. I think we all have to find like, where, what's your list? You know, I mean, I have lists, I have Excel spreadsheets as well with like, I have one that's just says conversations happening now with Silt. And then I go, and I update it and I, I'm like, okay, well, I've, I've, I sent an email to this person on this day or we had a follow-up coffee meeting or whatever um, because it's really hard to contain everything and there's so much going on. And uh, if when I first started and I would wake up fresh and be like, okay, what, what's today bringing? And then I'd be like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> what am I doing today? Yeah. And so... <laughs> I basically like I have Sunday Emily take care of Thursday Emily and I think about and then if Thursday Emily's like oh I had too much wine last night I can't like screenwrite today or whatever you know whatever the 
the circumstances, then I'll change the plan. But just, I do think having a plan is really helpful. Um, and then I do have a producer in Chicago and we meet every Friday and we just talk about stuff and it really helps to keep me on track. I also have a director's group in Denver that we meet once a month. So that's like a space for like updating and just kind of reflecting on where I'm at or whatever. Um, and then I do have like some creative conversations with some of my colleagues at the university where we meet and just all read something of theirs or vice versa. I do like send out my scripts to kind of one person at a time. But if, you know, when I get to a certain point in my writing process, I need feedback, like I need somebody to tell me something, you know, and, and also stepping away, I think is useful because I do think a lot of writing is thinking as well. So, um, yeah, so I just try to be super organized. I think that like, I think chaos like limits your freedom and your creativity. And that if you can actually like find a pattern and, you know, like right now I've, I've actually been on fellowship this semester. I'm working on another, I'm working on two other projects actually, but they gave me a three course release. So I'm getting paid my salary and not teaching. And it's like the most amazing thing ever. Um, so I've never had this before where I'm actually like, getting paid and can entirely be focused on filmmaking and it's and I'm busy I'm like this is a full-time job I mean every day and there's a lot there are a lot of opportunities but it's also that like finding the opportunities vetting the opportunities to be like oh I'm a good match for these or no like turns out you have to be Asian American to apply for this or turns out you have to be under 40 or you know there's all these little sub sort of rules to everything and so it, yeah. it, takes, it takes a lot of work um, yeah I, I appreciate that so much um I, sometimes I'll be going through my day and I'm like am I doing anything I'm just sitting at the computer but then I like well at the end of the night I keep a gratitude journal and I'll write down I'm like no I, I did stuff look at all this and then it kind of adds up over time um it builds momentum but uh do you like do your own like location scouting too or um like, I, I feel like one of the things I'm developing a feature now and I'm just driving around and I'm like, man, should I have someone here helping me with this? Or do I just, when do I approach others and how do I keep the energy up sometimes uh, with it when things stall out? Yeah, I think having, having a, you know, other, whether it's a location manager or an associate producer, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who, who, you know, need to develop their their practice alongside someone else or even someone who's another filmmaker with a feature in development who you know you can provide certain things to them and and vice versa with my producer he we went to school at Vermont College together and uh the producer I was working with for moving parts it wasn't it sort of shifted and I needed help finishing the film and he came on and you know I mean we have to work on things all the time in terms of like our dynamic, but I'm so grateful for him. And I'm so grateful to like have someone to bounce off ideas or be like, we got rejected or we got accepted or, you know, someone who's like sharing in the the, the peaks and valleys with me. Yeah. And so, but I mean like location scouting, I think is fun to do. And that's like a part of like also where you can start to visualize blocking or like the story or whatever. So um, cool. yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs>
Thanks for the question, Joe. Um, so uh, thank you so much, Emily, for for spending time. I love I love hearing about everybody's process, and it's it's great to hear about your work. And also, this thing about balancing academia and and filmmaking is 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 very interesting. Um, so thank, thank you for you. Yes, thank, thank you, everybody thank you, Emily, yes. in the audience, and um, for coming uh, to the filmmakers' life and learning about how to build a sustainable career in filmmaking. That's really why we're here, is to to learn about that. Actually, before you go, I would like to ask you one thing. So you said in your classes you teach everything that you didn't know when you made your first feature. What's what's one thing you would tell a filmmaker? Um, making their first film that you didn't know when you when you made your first feature? Well, um, I mean, I think it's how you started off, Joanne, this idea of like, you know, being a filmmaker requires every skill set imaginable. So, you know, this idea that we just, I mean, some people somehow get to just write and direct and someone else takes care of everything else. And I think that's incredibly lucky. And I've been looking for that someone else who can take care of everything else for me. But um, I think that some people don't like to think about their audience. And basically, uh, you know, I do think you should write from within and that you should make work because you want to and need to and have something to say. And I also think we make work to reach somebody and that somebody is our audience. And so, you know, the beginning process of identifying your audience connects you to the end process of distribution. And also identifying your audience helps you to raise the funds to make the movie, to sell the movie. And I mean, I'm particularly concerned about distribution in the independent sort of landscape right now in America at least and um you know really want to figure out like where is the my the home for this next film that I'm making before we you know start shooting so I think that that's you know we like to think of filmmaking as as um something that's that's entirely creative but it's really it is has a whole like business infrastructure around it and understanding those parts and understanding what you're saying and who you're saying it to, I think it's really important. Yes, and uh, I'm this quarter, all my workshops I'm teaching are on distribution. I just taught one on Monday uh, that was specifically about advertising supported video on demand. And at the end of June, I'm teaching a class um, that's, uh, that's called uh, the one sentence that sells your film. <laughs> so uh, this this quarter, I'm focusing on distribution, and uh, and you know, there's this whole idea that everything is changing, everything is changing, and yet it's like you were saying. Fundamentally, a film is about tone and color and sound, and and so there are these fundamentals that don't change, even though things are changing with distribution. But there are fundamentals that don't change. So. Um, Anyway, that's what I'm teaching this quarter. So everybody's welcome to come to those workshops. Thanks again for coming, Emily. What a pleasure to meet you. And thanks, Emily. Thanks, the other Emily. <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks everybody for coming. Bye-bye.